Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Good morning, good morning. Thank you guys for the diapers. This is the poopinest kid I've ever met in my life. And so they will come in good use. Thank you to everybody who's helped, served, brought food. We appreciate you guys so much. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start in verse 15. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. We exalt your name. We say there's no one like you, God. You alone are king. You alone are Lord. Lord, this morning we ask that you would um, cause these truths um, from this scripture to so infuse our hearts and infuse our thinking that we would walk out of here radically different. We know you can do it. We're thankful. We're appreciative. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. In 1787, delegates from every state uh, except Rhode Island, Rhode Island didn't send anyone, uh, came to Philadelphia to revisit the Articles of Confederation. Um, it turned into them deciding that they're going to draft an entire new um, constitution, um, and it took them about 100 days, um, but you can imagine that the discussions were heated, the discussions were um, frustrating. Just the the men sitting sitting in the room, uh, they had the windows nailed shut. So you know, you know how frustrated you are just when you're hot? Have you ever done that? Like sometimes I'm sitting at home and I'm just real grumpy. I just realize I'm grumpy. And Haley will say, what's wrong with you? And I'll say, I don't know. And then I'll go, it's hot in here. Like it's really hot. I'm sweating. My pits are sweating. So they're frustrated. Uh, they're praying. They're, um, they're not making any progress in conversation. They're, what's, what's really interesting about the, uh, the founders trying to come together on our constitution is that, man, they're doing philosophy. They're doing theology. They're talking about the value of man, the dignity of man, and the way that man is fallen. They're doing philosophy. Then they're trying to do administration, right? Like they're trying to think through how organ, organizationally how this can actually work. And so there's this moment about 40 days in where the delegates are, they're not making any progress. They're just, Frustrated. There's you. Each each representative is representing their own state, so they have their own biases, their own prejudices, their own needs, and they just cannot come to uh, come to progress. And what's what's really kind of funny is that Benjamin Franklin, who was the oldest of the of the delegates, he stands up to give a speech. And do you remember we talked about Benjamin Franklin some when we talked about George Whitfield because Franklin has this relationship with George Whitfield, um, and Whitfield seems to say that he never really got anywhere with Benjamin Franklin. And so history says that Benjamin Franklin was a deist, meaning that like he kind of believed in God, but he wasn't really a Christian. He didn't have a strong foundation. And so history says that Benjamin Franklin was one of the least spiritual people in the room, if not the, the least spiritual, but he was the oldest. And so he stood up after 40 days. They're making no progress. They're just talking they're they're talking about other governments they're trying to study other constitutions looking at how other people are functioning in europe um but there's there's heated debate heated discussion bump just you know just knocking heads and finally um uh, franklin stands up and he says this i wanted to read it to you he says mr president and um and washington is is overseeing the um the kind of discussion 
He says, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance, and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as, as yeses, it's a melancholy proof of imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want for political wisdom since we have been running about in search for it. We've gone back to ancient history for models of government. We've examined the different forms of those republics which have been, uh, have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now, that now no longer exist. We have viewed modern states all around Europe, but we find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and we're scarce able to distinguish it. This is the point I want to talk about here. He says, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who are engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow can't fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, uh, that except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. He says, this is so interesting, he says, I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babylon, of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to the future age. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, uh, this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it the chance, war and conquest. So what Benjamin Franklin just said to our fathers was, we're not making any progress. We've studied, we've thought, we've looked at other governments. We've looked at our government. We've, we've talked about a million different constitutions, but all we have is a bunch of little fractions and butting heads, and we've all got our own prejudices, and we're not going anywhere. And then he says, um, he's addressing Washington, and he says, how is it that we prayed every day in this room for divine protection when we were at war with Great Britain? And we know that God protected us. We know that God provided for us. And how is it that we have yet 40 days to stop and pray that the Father of lights, this is a James reference, the Father of lights would illuminate our understanding, would give us wisdom. Then he says that, I think that if we don't stop to pray, we'll be no better than the builders of Babylon, and all of our building will be in vain. And then he says, and in history, we'll go down as a byword. In history, he said, and, and God forbid that history never again tries uh, to build a government based on liberty and based on freedom. And he says, there's a great risk here, and how is it, for heaven's sake, that we haven't stopped to pray? That's profound coming from the least spiritual man in the room. He says we're groping, did you hear the part where he says we're groping in the dark for truth? We're going after understanding but can't come to it. So what, what's interesting about, about Franklin's statements and, and the, the, the kind of 
leads us into our text today, is what he's saying is that we were quick to pray for protection. We're quick to pray for blessing. We're quick to pray for, pray for peace and happiness. Um, but he said, how is it that we haven't stopped to pray for understanding, to pray for wisdom? And, and so our text today is, remember the first 14 verses of Ephesians are what scholars are calling a blessing, like Hebraic kind of poetic blessing. And then in verse 15, he's going to slide right into prayer. But what's interesting is that Paul does not pray for the protection of the saints. He does not pray for the blessing of the saints, the peace of the saints, the happiness of the saints. What's on Paul's heart to pray for the saints in all the surroundings of areas of Ephesus is that they would understand that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. That they would have a divinely inspired, intimate knowledge of Christ. Paul's first and foremost prayer for the saints is their understanding. So let's read the text. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first thing we see, like just, just kind of glancing at the text, is we see this pastoral affection that Paul has for the saints who, um, again, we believe... Scholars believe that the book of Ephesus is a circular letter written to maybe up to 14 churches in Asia Minor. So we see this apostolic, father-like heart that Paul has for all of these churches. And he starts to say, say things like, I'm thanking God for you. I'm, I'm, he, he's kind of celebrating them. I've heard of your great love for each other. There's this celebration. And then he slips into his prayer. So it's so interesting because, because in his in his writing and in his thinking of them, he slips into this thing of praying that they would have an encounter with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So pastoral affection for the churches. And then he slips right into this prayer for spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. There's some conversation um, in commentaries about whether the spirit there, which if, if that was the ESV, it capitalizes the S spirit. And, and they mean to imply that the text means that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of revelation and wisdom that's given to you. I think that's the most likely reading of the text. Some argue that it's spirit with a little S, like God needs to give you a spirit that can receive wisdom and revelation. The debate there really doesn't matter. It doesn't change the implication of the text. What I want to say about it is that when Haley and I sit and we talk about our daughters, one thing we say often is that we want them to not just have an intellectual understanding of God. We want them to have encounters with God. 
And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a knowledge of God that, that includes intellectual understanding, but it's beyond intellectual understanding. There is an encounter with God that, that, that works its way in your brain and helps you understand, but it seeps so down into your heart that now you're living with this extreme boldness and confidence and security in the perfect established love of Christ toward the saints. And you can walk up and speak and preach and take risk without fear because you've experienced something. When he means spirit of wisdom, does he mean for us to think of Solomon and this Solomon and the book of Proverbs and this kind of proverbial understanding? When he says the spirit of revelation, does he mean for our minds to go back to Isaiah when he sees God and says, Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst men with unclean lips? Does he want us to have this kind of revelatory experience that Daniel would have with God or any of the great prophets? Ezekiel, does he want us to catch glimpses of God's glory in such a way that it shatters the very foundation of of our lives and we have to totally rework the way that we think because we realize how stinking magnificent God is. Is that what he has in mind for us? Either way, I think he's saying that we need to have encounters with the Holy Spirit that reveal knowledge to us, that bring us to informed intimacy. He's praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would lead us in knowledge of him. And we talk about this all the time. So remember that, that the, the Greek word knowledge, it, it really doesn't just mean information. It means like relational knowing. It, it implies that Adam and Eve knowing. There's intimate, an intimate knowing. And so Haley and I talk about our kids and we talk about um, being young or I'm still young. Forgive me. You know, I'm working on that. Um, when we were younger and we would have prayer nights, man, and we'd pray like through the night and just cry and laugh and roll on the ground and God would show up and God would be so real to us that when we got up off the ground to leave, it just wasn't the same. And so we're already praying like, God, please send someone to drag our little girls to youth camp. And I pray that the worship is anointed and that they have to like, like soak and bask in the goodness of God. And that because what we understand and what I want you to understand as a church is that Christianity is is not merely an intellectual resolve. And people will, we've done everything we can to make Christianity just about intellectual resolve. And it's not. Christianity is an experiential faith. But what we've also got to understand is that intellectual resolve, belief and experience are not pitted against each other. They're not counter one another. We don't have to choose if we're going to be a word of God church or if we're going to be a spirit of God church. We're going to be a word of God church that pursues the spirit of God. They're not in conflict. And so what I've always taught, and as I'm teaching young people, and you know, I was teaching Bible, um, what I've always taught is that doctrine is like this. We, we hold that the word of God is inerrant, inspired. It's fully true, absolutely true from beginning to end. But but just understanding the doctrine doesn't bring me into an encounter with God. But the doctrine matters. And so what I always say is that doctrine is like a guardrail. So doctrine builds for us guardrails along the side of the road. So when the Mormon comes and knocks on your door and starts to try to lead you into his experience, and 
he tries to bring you into his teaching, uh, he's, you're smashing a guardrail, man, because this has already built a, a path for me to go down. Does this make sense? I have a, I have a framework. You can't pull me down into your experience because there's a guardrail. And what's interesting about the, the Mormon missionary that comes to your door, when you press them and, and just to say, like, those Mormon missionaries are young. They're kind, young kids. And so there's no reason to be rude, no reason to be arrogant. So don't hear me advocating that. But when I press them and I sit down with Galatians and I start to talk about salvation by faith alone, man. And is this really what you believe? Is this because I have a heart for these 18, 19-year-old kids who a lot of the times don't really have a good grip on their faith. Um, their immediate retract, they retract and they've been taught to retract to experience. And they'll say, all I know is that I've had an experience reading the Book of Mormon, and I know that it's true. The problem with that is that we could all make that claim. We've, and, and it's actually a pretty common claim. A lot of other organizations make that claim. I've had this experience, and so I know it's true. I could say the same thing. I've had this experience in the New Testament so that I know my faith is true. True experience is also true logically. It's also built on true, a true foundation of history, of, of theology. And so you, you can't solely depend on experience because doctrine builds that framework. So I don't want my kids to just have an experience. I don't want my kids to think that they're encountering God and find out that they're encountering some Hindu thing or whatever. I want them to have an experience with the true and living God, the real Holy Ghost that will set them free deep within their bones. But in order for them to have a true experience, I also have to be a person of doctrine. I build doctrine up. I build that groundwork. I build those, those, those guardrails. And I say, if someone tries to lead you to experience outside of these guardrails, stop. They're not leading in the right direction. But just to teach them, just to build the guardrails and to never put gas in the car and say, put your foot on it is also a waste. So I'm teaching them the truth of God. You know, they're like two. I'm not yet. I'm, I'm, we're working. We're trying to do the, like the ABCs and Jesus loves me. But, I want to, to, to teach them the truth of God so that they realize that understanding intellectually that Jesus is good is not the same thing as getting on the ground, locking yourself in prayer, putting worship on and experiencing the goodness of God. It's not the same thing as tasting and seeing his goodness. And to understand intellectually that God wants us to be a people of sacrificial love, to understand intellectually that God cares about the orphan and the widow, and to do nothing about that is not Christianity. And so, again, Christianity is in an intellectual set of beliefs driven by pure doctrine, but it's intended to be experienced, lived out. And so what Paul is saying here is that I don't just want you to get it and have an intellectual foundation. I want you to have an experience with the Holy Spirit that would cause you to drive those truths so deep in your bones that when you're faced with trials and struggle and problem and hardship, you're sure of the goodness of God. So, so many times we talk about being balanced, and we do want to be people of balance, but the idea of being balanced is not the idea that we're going to be half a, half Bible church and a half Holy Spirit church. We're not going to kind of be a Bible church and kind of be a Pentecostal church. Um, the idea of balance, that leaves you like, you know, you ever seen a dog with just two legs and they try to get to running and they just run in circles? Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Um, it's sometimes that's what we're doing in the church. We've got to get both legs on. The idea of balance is that we have both legs on. We are carrying two five-gallon buckets full of water. One, we are fully a Word of God church. And two, we are fully a Holy Spirit church that believes in the signs, wonders, and miracles, that believes in the gifts of the Spirit. And so when we hold both, we're balanced enough to go somewhere, man. If you're just holding one, you're just going to spin in circles. And the reason, just for the record, if you just give me 20 seconds to explain this, the reason we believe in the gifts of the Spirit historically is not because the Pentecostal church just started having experiences with the gifts of the Spirit. The reason that the Pentecostal church historically started to pursue the gifts of the Spirit was because they saw it in the text. So the Pentecostal movement is absolutely a sola scriptura movement. That's that Latin phrase from the reformers that means scripture alone. Scripture alone is true. And so what happened was a group of Methodists started looking at Acts and started going, what is the Bible teaching us about what we should live? And then they said, let's pursue it. It's in the scripture. Let's pursue it. And that's still our model. Sola Scriptura. The Scripture alone is our truth. But what's in here we want to experience and we want to live out. And so when this says pursue prophecy, then we've got to, we've got to pursue prophecy. And when this says don't forbid speaking in tongues, we're, we're not going to forbid speaking in tongues. But on the same stroke, you hear me. When this says that true religion is caring for the orphan and the widow, we're not doing Christianity just to pursue prophecy and to not care for the orphan and the widow. We're going to do it all. Hallelujah. And so uh, I just threw it in my notes. We're putting the details together for the stirring weekend. We're getting ready for like a night of worship. And that's really the heart that we would take time as a church to stop and just worship, man, and just invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you to be here, invite your friends and family. We've, we'll figure out what we need to figure out to get people here. But we want to be a people of experience. We don't want to just talk about knowing God. We want to know Him. And so we're going to keep doing things like that, that we're creating opportunity for God to step in and speak and move in our midst. Okay, so once he says that I'm praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, um, that you would grow in the knowledge of Him, um, he says this, he says, having the, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that's an interesting phrase, right? Like the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And so he wants us to know intimately that you are called to hope. Remember that biblical hope is not... Um, I know we are all hoping that the Florida State Seminoles go all the way this year, right? Like we are, we're praying, we're fasting, we're interceding that the Noles are going to go all the way. We're all hoping that. But the chances of that happening are slim, okay? I get it. Um, and so biblical hope is not that. It's not like, I hope this comes to, to pass. Biblical hope is your kid on Christmas Eve hoping that morning would come faster. Biblical hope is anticipating a reality that is sure to come. It's knowing without a shadow of a doubt that tomorrow will come, that Jesus will step his foot on the Mount of Olives. He will set all things right. There will be a coming day where tears are wiped, where pain is driven away, and where deliverance is fully established, where even the possibility of sin will be ripped from us. And we're sure of it. That's biblical hope. And so... R.C. Sproul, um, theologian, just passed this year actually, notes that Galatians 5.5 5 says um, that we await the hope of righteousness. Colossians 1.27, 
says that we have a hope of glory. Jesus Christ is our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1 and Titus 1.2. Paul tells us that God has given us the hope of eternal life. And then Sproul goes on to say that the etern- this hope is the eternal resurrected existence we will enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth face to face before our holy God as beings who cannot sin because of the redemption of our Savior purchased for us. And so the hope that you're called to is full redemption, man. Total ultimate redemption. The hope is that you would live with that eager Christmas Eve anticipation of what's coming tomorrow. That you press through, just hear me for a second, man. I don't have no intention of being controversial this morning. Um, but the, but the very idea of hope, the very idea that you're called to be a people of hope implies that what we currently live in is not the fulfillment. The very idea of hope implies that everything that's coming our way has not come our way yet. And that's so controversial to say in in the Pentecostal charismatic movement right now. But historically, Christianity has always believed what's called the now and not yet principle. That the kingdom is here now. That we have access to God now. That the blood of Jesus has washed me now. That now I have been born again. I believe that God can heal the sick now. But now is not the time in which sickness is totally eradicated. And so... The the very idea of hope, just hear me, man, I'm not trying to be controversial. The very idea of hope implies sorrow. The very idea that you are called to be a people of hope implies that we will continue to have people in our midst who struggle with sickness, who struggle with depression, who struggle with controversy. And we're going to continue to believe for healing, believe for restoration, but we understand that hardships are to come. The Bible calls you to be a people of perseverance. If, if, if the Christian life now was fully abundant, why does the Bible keep telling you to persevere? Why does the Bible tell us to mourn with those who mourn? And so, what I'm trying to say is that we believe in the now and not yet principle, that the kingdom of God is coming fully, that we are seeing more and more of the kingdom every day. But no matter what you believe about suffering, no matter what you believe about physical healing, there are a hundred of us in the room, there are 400 different beliefs about physical healing because we all change our mind once a week. Um, And so there's no reason to argue about that. There's no reason to argue about it. But what I want to encourage us to do is no matter what your system of belief is concerning physical healing, is to realize that we are going to continue to have people struggle. And that if you're too dogmatic with your system concerning healing, you'll start to condemn people. Because you'll start to say, we'll we'll pray for someone who has cancer and we'll believe for them to have healing. And then if they're not healed, rather than doing the biblical thing and just appealing to mystery and saying, man, we don't know why they weren't healed, but we're going to hold to our faith. What we do is we start to say they weren't healed because they have a lack of faith or they weren't healed because they didn't confess what we wanted them to confess. Rather than just, just, man, for heaven's sake, appeal to mystery. Appeal to mystery and say, I don't know. I'm not sure why we didn't have breakthrough here. I'm, but, but don't, don't condemn the person who's struggling. Don't, don't point your finger as if you, don't be the Job's friends. Don't say, I know exactly what she did wrong. Like love people. Let the, for, for heaven's sake, let's love people more than that. And so I think the biblical model, without diving too deep into that, is to pray for healing, intercede for healing, believe for hearing, healing, But understand that we're all going to pass eventually. And so when people pass, we say, man, I don't know why that, I don't know why they weren't healed. 
but we affirm their sure hope that Jesus is going to bust out and raise them up out of that grave one day. That to be absent with the body, man, is to be present with Christ. And today they are in eternal glory. And if we could just, we all have different views on healing. That's okay. But if we could just land there, that we're not going to condemn anybody. We're going to appeal to mystery and then we apply hope. Hope is the, 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 the fix here. We apply hope that we are hoping that for the fulfillment of the kingdom, it will come. I've had people say crazy things to me. I had, I had a guy say to me once, um, I, I don't know, I had like a sinus thing. You ever have a sinus thing? I had like a sinus thing. And he was like, I'm, I'm delivered from all the effects of the curse. And like, I understand what you're trying to say, but, but I was like, my friend, um, when you work, do you sweat? Like, do you, does, when you have a, when your wife has a baby, do you think she'll feel pain? Like we, we're, we're still on the earth and the earth is still broken and we're believing for breakthrough. We're pressing through, but we, we don't have full breakthrough yet. And it's not helpful to walk around and pretend like we do to not be real about where we are and what we're struggling with. You can't help people mourn if you're just saying to them, oh, I'm delivered of all the curse. And the reason you're not is because you lack in faith. That's not helpful. I had a, I had a, I had a, read a teaching. I had a guy say to me once that, um, because this is what happens. Every person dies. The last, according to scripture, Corinthians, the last enemy is death. We're all going to die. We're all going to pass into new life. And so I had a young guy say to me once, um, a Christian that dies a physical death lacks faith. That the real model that's supposed to happen is that we're all supposed to be caught up in a chariot like Elijah. We're supposed to just disappear. And like, I hear your hyper-spiritual comment there, but that is an absolute disgrace, man. To, to all of the martyrs who had their heads chopped off, who were put on a stake and burned for their faith. That is a disgrace to every family in the Middle East who are standing before radical Muslims and saying, I will not deny my Jesus and being cut down. And that is a disgrace to every person in our congregation who is struggling with cancer, struggling with tumors, and they're hurting, and they're still confessing, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is good, and I'm believing Jesus for healing. Don't spit on them, man, with your shallow theology. And that's what we do. We spit on people with our shallow theology. And so I'm saying, like, have your views, but operate in love. And, and feel free, I give you license to appeal to mystery. If we, you, you ever really felt like God was going to heal someone, I really thought there was going to be breakthrough. And we fast and we pray and let's do everything we can possibly do to bring breakthrough to someone. But if it doesn't come, don't point the finger at anybody. Just say, man, this world's still broken. And we're still hoping for the coming day. And, and I'm going to love you. I'm going to mourn with you. I'm not going to condemn you. We're people of hope. We're not people of condemnation. You would know the hope to which you're called. And the hope to which you're called is full and final redemption. Then he says he wants us to have this experience that would cause us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And essentially what that means is this, is that we are Christ's reward. He wants you to be so sure in your heart that there, remember in Ephesians 1, that there is a seal put on you, that Christ has bought you, he has redeemed you, that you are his prize, that you are his treasure. And you can rest in the fact that Christ is eagerly awaiting your return. 
is eagerly awaiting the moment when you get caught up in glory. You can rest in the fact that you are the inheritance of Christ, that he loves you perfectly. And then he says he wants us to know, and this is where we'll start to wrap up. He wants us to know the power that is toward us. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? This is like a run-on sentence thing here. It's so many thoughts flowing in once. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above rule and authority and power and dominion. He wants you to know that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is currently aimed at you. Remember again, the seal of the Holy Spirit that you received. So you walk around every day with a big target on your back and the power of God that resurrected Jesus out of the grave, that gave him new life, not only raised him from the dead, but exalted him far above every principality and power. That power, that manifest power of the Holy Spirit is, is a, is a gun aimed at you all day when you walk around. The power of God is towards you. It is pointed at you. And so you don't have to fear death because when you hit the grave, that power will be released towards you. And so I think that Paul is speaking in eschatological terms, um, um, in end time terms here. I think he's saying that realize that that power that is towards you will ultimately cause your dry and decrepit bones to to suck back together. He will put flesh back on your bones and you will live in perfect peace with Jesus on the new heaven and new earth. And so that power is towards you eschatologically. It's, it's towards you towards the end times. But again, now and not yet. That's what Paul's teaching us. Now and not yet. So he doesn't just say that the power is towards you and will raise you from the dead and will bring you to final redemption. But he, but he says that that power is already being released in you. Okay, give me five minutes to explain this concept. Um, F.F. Bruce is one of the greatest scholars um, of the last hundred years. And F.F. Bruce's commentary on the book of Ephesians, he notes that uh, we know that Ephesians and Colossians were written together. They were sent by the same person. They were written at the same time. Um, And so Colossians, according to Bruce, is dealing with some kind of false teaching which elevates principalities and powers and demonic things. And so Colossians, that's why in his view, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that all things were created through him, for him, by him. What he's saying is that every principality, every demon, every angel, all of those things owe their very existence to Christ, that Christ is seated above them and Christ is superior towards them. And so that's the, the emphasis of Colossians is that there, you don't have to, in, in Bruce's words, you don't have to pay homage to any demonic power because they are all totally subject to Christ. And what, what Bruce says is that Ephesians was written after Colossians and, and briefly after. And that he thinks that Ephesians is really a further meditation on the truth in which was given in Colossians. So now what he's saying, give me a second. What he's saying is that um, that power raised Christ up from the dead. And it was so important in Hebraic culture that it didn't just raise him from the dead. It exalted him to the throne room of God where Jesus would now sit down at the right hand of God, superior over every power, over every demon. And so Jesus, again, is the absolute head. But then he finishes it with this idea which should boggle your mind. And here's the idea, that he put all things under Christ's feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And now in verse chapter two, verse six, he says, and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So now, right now, so the power is aimed at me in the future, but right now Christ is seated in heaven, fully victorious, fully authoritative, absolutely supreme over every being. And somehow in our mystical union with Christ, I am seated with him. I belong to him. And so in Bruce's words, again, why in the world would you pay homage to any demonic power? You are seated above them. And why would you live in fear? You're, you are currently, okay? And, and this again, we can get into practice of that, that through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, through our, what theologians call our mystical union with Christ, I am fully united with Christ through faith in the work of the cross. He has deposited his spirit, calls me to be born again. I am fully united with Christ. And so when Christ sits down at the right hand of God, again, the watchman, the idea, when he sits down at the right hand of God, Hebrews says that priests come into the Holy of Holies year after year and they offer they stand and offer sacrifices. But when Jesus walked into the Holy of Holy with his own blood, he sat down at the right hand of God because the work was finished. And so Paul's now saying, for you too, it's finished. You're, you are seated in heavenly places. You do not have to be anxious. You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be concerned with tomorrow. You don't have to live life biting your nails. It's finished. You are fully, right in this moment, through your union with Christ, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit and his union with Christ, through that mystical union, you are in this moment. Your butt is sitting in the throne. And so the, the, the father, the apostle, the, the man who has planted all these churches, and now he's writing to them because he wants them to have an experience with God, an intimate encounter with God, not just a knowledge, but an intimate encounter with God that would drive these truths so deep into their bones that they wouldn't be shaken, that they would realize that they are a people of hope, but they are also a people of current, of right now victory. And so Paul wants these people to be confident. He wants these people to be sure. And he wants these people to pursue intimacy, like moments of encounter with Christ as they grow in understanding of who Christ is. It seems to me that Paul is saying that these truths are so large and these truths are so mind-boggling and so profound that you can't really get your mind around them without encountering God. That you need like a revelation of God. You need a moment in the presence of God for him to minister, administer these truths towards you through the Holy Spirit. And so just like those men uh, in that room in Philadelphia that day that are trying to sift through all their own opinions and ideas. And they need the wisdom of God to, to, to supremely manifest itself above their own ideas. We all live that way. I live with fear, I live with anxiety, I live with my own thoughts and my own opinions, and I need encounters with God that causes His truth to supremely smush, sit on top of my own thoughts and ideas. We can't get there without being people of encounter. We also can't get there without being people of the Word, who really try to understand it, honestly try to understand it. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.